Happy Monday and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon and with me is... Dave McConaughey. Good morning, Brie. Well, it's good evening, my time. <laughs> the magical world of the internet that we live in. in. In these COVID times, I feel like it's just all internet all the time. That's very true, yet I still haven't figured out the time zone difference, no matter the fact that we've been doing this for over 12 months, meeting over the interwebs. I still haven't figured it out. It's really fabulous that we can be doing it and that we have been doing it almost for a year and a half. And in fact, we are approaching a major milestone for the RSP coming up in this holiday season. We're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary. Can you, can you believe it? I can't believe it. And not only can I not believe it, but I'm keeping my lips sealed as to some very exciting special episodes coming up to celebrate that 10th anniversary. But before we get to those, what do we have going on this week? Today, we have a great episode that RSP contributor Savannah Fifner uh, gave us on Kitchens and the Constructions of Religious Subjectivity in Black Atlantic Traditions with the excellent Dr. Elizabeth Perez uh, of UCSB. We're delighted to focus on Lukumi and Santeria and, and bring you something that is new and different. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I am Savannah Finver and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Pettis, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of the award-winning book, Religion in the Kitchen, Cooking, Talking, and the Making of Black Atlantic, Atlantic Traditions, published by New York University Press. And Elizabeth, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Savannah. I'm so excited to be here. So um, let's just jump right in. Uh, your book, Religion in the Kitchen, is focused on um, Ile Leroye, which you describe as a predominantly African-American community based on the south side of Chicago dedicated to Lukumi, uh, or Lukumi, sorry, better known as Santeria, and related Afro-Caribbean traditions. So I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about how you, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about Lukumi and how you became interested in it and in the uh, Ile Leroy community specifically. Well, um, I guess one of the the most straightforward ways to talk about that is by taking an autobiographical turn um, and saying that I was raised in a household with Cuban parents. Um, they immigrated to the U.S. before I was born. And I grew up hearing these names of uh, deities called orichas. Um, I heard about them in Cuban songs. Um, sometimes there would be little asides. Um, let's say there was an image of the Virgin of Charity, the patroness of Cuba. And I knew that she was associated with Oshun, um, the goddess Oshun. But I I had no way of really accessing information beyond that. Um, part of that just has to do with the fact that my parents come from a part of Cuba that is not really associated with um, the worship of Orichas, but uh, they were conversant with Espiritismo. And that's um, a Caribbean tradition that has to do with 
um, mediumship and especially accessing the spirit, um, the spirits of people who have died, um, who are said to still be available to practitioners, um, to help them through their lives, to become sort of companions spiritually. And so, um, when I thought to myself, what am I going to do in my doctoral program? Am I going to, what direction am I going to pursue? Um, I thought about what I had learned in college about the Orichas and about how the worship of them had taken root in the U.S. among people who weren't Cuban, um, people who did not have a Caribbean background or were immigrants. Um, and I really fortunately was introduced um, to one of the, the main um, subjects of the book, um, named in the book Ashabi mostly, um, in... 2001. And it's a story I tell um, towards the beginning of the book that I was able to um, meet her as a result of having an introduction from a senior Cuban American priest. And so I started to get to know um, the practical ways uh, that the Orishas are venerated in the United States. Um, and it really expanded my idea of what religion was, what it could be for people, um, and who they became as they, um, started to relate, um, their understandings of the Rishas to their own stories. Wow. That's so, um, that's so interesting. And it's, you know, to me, very interesting. You ended up uh, working in the the Ile Leroy community, and um, it's very clear throughout the book that you kind of uh, played a role of you weren't just you know observing on the on the sidelines in this community. You were actually participating, right? Um, along I was, with I was, and I should say that um, I I met um, the leaders of Ile Leroy after a couple of years um, in in my graduate program early on of trying to kind of ingratiate myself um, to immigrant and Latinx practitioners, um, owners of religious supply stores called Botanicas in Chicago. And I really just did not get a foothold for whatever reason, um, you know, appealing to the fact of, hey, I'm Cuban, I would like to know more about my heritage and so forth. That did not provide me with, um, you know, that, that much, um, purchase in these situations for some reason. Um, so ironically, perhaps I found myself welcomed in a black community, um, a predominantly black community that has, um, some important elder members who are, um, either white or, uh, Latinx. And so, uh, that I guess is a, a story all, all unto itself. Um, but I can certainly say more. Yeah, I would certainly love to hear more about that because, you know, as we were talking, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, uh, uh, Lukumi is, is a Cuban-based tradition, right? Um, so it was interesting to me that uh, that you were participating in a predominantly African-American community that seemed to have um, appropriated some of these uh, – uh, you know, some of this Cuban um, imagery and some of the uh, elements of this Cuban tradition. So um, like, if you could tell us more about what you know about how that took place and um, how how it adapted into these Black communities in Chicago. 
Absolutely. Um, I just would want to start by flagging that I think in this context, appropriation is probably not the word we want to use. Um, That's true. (laughs) Simply because, you know, it's highly um, delicate. It's delicate and politicized because um, the community with which I work had Cuban melders, um, the leaders um, not only had been to West Africa and sort of, you know, the cradle of um, this this tradition um, in Nigeria, but they'd also been to Cuba. And in fact, in some ways thought of Cuba as more of a Mecca, um, as more of a sort of pilgrimage site um, than um, West Africa was. And um, that is a departure from the way that many other African Americans in the U.S. do pursue Orisha worship, which is that their preference is to go to what they think of as directly the source in West Africa. Um, They have sought since the 1960s to remove any vestiges of what they see as um, European uh, corruptions of Orisha worship that that come out of Cuba and elsewhere in the Caribbean and um, purify it, quote unquote, um, of inaccuracies, of sort of colonial holdovers in in especially in the material culture of Orisha worship, um, and so. I'm I'm now at UCSB and here in LA, there's a large community of Orisha uh, devotees, but a significant number of them are practitioners whose elders are Nigerian or um, whose elders go regularly to West Africa. And they, they really do not have that connection with Cuba that I discuss in my book. Well, that's, and that's uh, very interesting as well. And I appreciate you flagging for me, um, you know, the, the problematic use of, uh, of the term appropriation. Um, so go ahead. But I, I just want to add, though, that I think um, your, your mentioning that term is really, um, it, it importantly opens up this conversation because um, for a lot of Black Americans, especially in the 1960s and 70s, who, um, who were beginning to... Um, become attracted to the tradition, uh, they often had a really hostile reception um, from light-skinned Latinx people, um, from white immigrants. Um, and and from their from their point of view, um, from the from Black Americans' point of view, Orisha worship was being appropriated um, by the leaders of the Lukumi communities that they found. And so, um, you know, the preference for West African elders, for Nigerian leadership is not just, you know, it's not simply aesthetic. It also um, is a, is about a politics of reclamation and retaking Orisha worship um, for other melanated people. So, um, it's uh, a dynamic situation that I continue to be fascinated by. Absolutely, and I'm sure um, you know your research in the in the future will continue to look at um, some of these issues more in depth. And there's certainly uh, more uh, deeper description in the book. Mm. Um, I would like to switch gears just a little bit um, and talk a little bit about our. Uh, the Religious Studies Project's theme for this month, for the month of September, is ritual. Um, and I really think that the central argument in your book uh, fits into this theme very nicely. So as the title aptly notes, um, re- religion in the kitchen focuses around the practices of meal preparation for a variety of the West and Central African spirits that we were just discussing. Um 
and, you know, discussions about the initiation process, which are taking place in the kitchen that you um, both participated in and observed uh, at Ile Leroye. Um, and you refer to these uh, in the book as uh, micro practices. So I was wondering, um, this seemed to be, you know, a central part of the, the theme of your book. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the distinction that you draw specifically between micro practices and macro practices. And why is this distinction, um, do you think, like important for understanding uh, Lukumi as it's practiced in the community that you observed? So one thing that I would want to start out by saying is that um, I pick up the term micropractices from Michel Foucault. Um, and, and for me to just, um, you know, disavow coinage because um, that, that is a term that is associated with the book, but I, I don't want to seem to be taking uh, credit where it's not due. Um, but for me, the distinction had to do with, um, in a way, reflecting back on the classic work that I had read on ritual as a graduate student. And here I have to place myself at the University of Chicago um, and the History of Religions program and thinking about classic works on rites of passage, um, ritual, for example, as drama, and thinking about uh, the stage of ritual, the adoption of roles that religious actors take on and so forth. Um, I discuss in the book, there's an anecdote um, where I describe sitting in the kitchen, really waiting for um, rituals to begin because I thought I was here in the kitchen doing nothing, quote unquote, um, when I'd be peeling potatoes or when I'd be frying plantains at the stove. Because my idea of what field work would be as a graduate student was that I would ask about um, what rituals had gone on that I could not see. Um, this is a closed religion. This is a religion in which um, many uh, of the, the most sacred rituals are not observable by people who are not initiated. Um, and so my only access to them, I thought, would be, well, through interview. Um, and so here I was doing, doing work that I didn't think of uh, as being significant ritually. And it was only over time when I noticed the training that went into cooking and the mentorship that took place in the kitchen, where I thought to myself, you know, this is sort of analogous to a behind the scenes um, of a play. And everyone thinks that, um, you know, what happens, the transformative action that takes place on the stage is the most significant. Um interaction that is taking place. But I could see from my vantage point um, that this is where people were being trained to carry on the tradition. Um, because it, I, I mean, and, and it is possible that it is different in other traditions, although the more I read, the more I realized that micro practices in other religious traditions are also uh, much more consequential than they've been given credit for. So um, I did start to see this distinction between the macro practices um, that were either more public, for example, drum rituals that, um, you know, do tend to have a lot of people with different levels of seniority attend, um, even people who are not affiliated with this, those communities that put on the drum rituals for the Orishas, um, other macro 
practices you might think of um, are rites of passage, rites of consecration. And these were the ones about about which books had been written. Um, so opening up so many of these books that had been published, let's say in the 1990s or the early 2000s with Century and the title, um, they they revolved around these macro practices. And I didn't find in them the micro practices that I was engaged in. Um, and so I felt that gave a skewed idea of what these religions really um, offered in terms not only of the the field of religious studies, but to the ordinary practitioner, um, because there's there's no way that um, one is going to um, be welcomed into certain macro practice rituals without uh, the proper uh, initiatory um, seal of approval, let's say, the, the proper um, ascension to seniority. And so people are going to walk into that house of worship and they're going to be peeling potatoes and they're going to be flying, frying plantains. Um, and I felt like it was it was important for me to make that distinction analytically um, to try to explain the normative um, conditions, um, you know, under which micro practices have endured. Um, and, and also to try to make the statement that um, it, it's important for scholars to look at um, the little things that are happening, the idle chit chat that's taking place, um, the, the small gestures that people make, whether they're walking or standing, um, that, you know, generally just get consigned to kind of not even the footnotes. Maybe they, they remain in the field notes because they are not what... Um, people are encouraged to analyze in the main text. Right. And I find that so, I found that so fascinating when I was reading your book because, you know, much of my work in the past has focused on larger systems of, Mm. uh, you know, politics and uh, legal traditions in the U.S. And so um, I have not done any kind of ethnography. um, And I usually do more of a uh, like a language type of mm. um, analysis, a discursive analysis. But I found that when I was reading your book, you you were able to engage really in both practices because you had such a kind of an, uh, by engaging as a participant, you had uh, more direct access and you got to um, observe kind of the the processes of individual subject formation in a way that looking at larger systems and larger um, rituals probably, as you said, would would not grant us that kind of access. And I mean, just to um, also, again, give credit where it's due, um, there was a book uh, by Loic Waquant that came out in 2004 that was really influential for me. It's called Body and Soul, Notebooks of an Apprentice Boxer. And um, it's about this French sociologist's um, quest to understand um, the bodily habitus of the boxer um, by doing fieldwork on Chicago South Side. Um, Loic Wakwan would go on to be my um, mentor at uh, UC Berkeley when I was um, uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship there um, in sociology. And so 
um, there's a sort of interesting, I guess, parallel line um, between this this project and and what I would later go on to do. Um, but Body and Soul was so influential for me because um, I found very compelling Wakwan's account of how um, there are few ways to access um, the states of mind, um, or you could say the subject formation processes of the people with whom we work, um, unless we're actually prepared to submit to those rigors um, and to submit to the craft uh, that it takes to become a certain kind of person. Um, and so uh, by the time that I was, I was doing my field work um, 2005 on, um, I, I was delighted just to be able to give myself over to that. Um, and, uh, I'm eternally grateful for having that opportunity, um, to do so within this community. Yeah. I, it's, um, like reading your book was a, a very interesting experience for me because I kind of felt in the way that you described particularly like, you know, the, the act of the ritual sacrifice and then how those meals, you know, are, are then prepared for the spirits in the kitchen. I, I kind of felt like it was like I was there while mm. reading your descriptions. It was very visceral uh, in a way that I, you know, I'm not, I guess, accustomed to uh, reading about. Um, and I think it gave a really unique insight into the different kinds of, uh, again, conversations that are, are happening around, uh, you know, this meal preparation and, um, and how, uh, as you were noting earlier, practitioners are, are prepared to enter into this community and then carry on its traditions afterwards. I'm really, um, yeah, I, I'm so gratified to hear that. And I think part of it is that um, I was trying to make also a kind of disciplinary statement about the importance of the senses um, and literal viscera and the way that um immersion in traditions like this um, in which there are no scriptures per se. Uh, there are oral texts um, and there are inscriptions. Um, so for example, when people get initiated, they receive um, a, a really important divination uh, that is then uh, transcribed often into a book and you know that person carries that inscription with them and and that that transcription of the divination is really important for that priest's um life uh and and really the entirety of their existence not just their career as the priest but um is important for their day to day um so it's not correct to say that these traditions are entirely oral um but certainly one's experience of them is um much more immediate much less uh mediated by text, um, at least traditionally, that has been the case in um, other quote-unquote world religions. And so um, I, on the one hand, I did want to reaffirm the importance of the senses and the body. And on the other, I did want to push against this notion um, that we have to always uh, clean up these traditions for the consumption of critics. Um, there has been a long history of sort of bodlerizing um, the scholarship on these traditions so that they very minimally mention sacrifice. They're, they very minimally mention um, aspects of, of these traditions that are not 
seen as respectable. Um, and uh, I hear I use Evelyn um, Evelyn Higginbotham's notion of politics of respectability to talk about the ways that, particularly because these are Black traditions, that with African deities, um, practitioners have felt. Um, very nervous about opening them up to criticism based on um, the fact that uh, there is sacrifice, that there is the eating um, of uh, animals that have been butchered in uh, sacramental contexts. And so that was incredibly challenging to try to capture the importance of these processes without in some ways fetishizing them. Um, and so I was quite nervous, um, not so much to think about what my colleagues in religious studies would say about the book, but to think about, um, my interlocutors and to think about other people who are involved in the tradition who I did not know. Um, but so far the critiques have been, have been gentle and instructive, um, and, uh, not, um, let's say, um, discounting of my project. They have been about the particulars of the book, but not about um, the sort of program that I've laid out for it um, that I just described. Right. And I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the most fascinating little, I guess, vignettes that you tell um, in, in one part of the book is you talk about, um, I forget her name, but there was a, a young girl who was being prepared uh, for initiation. And, um, you know, she was just being introduced to this, to some of these processes of sacrifice, uh, that her, uh, I believe it was her mother had, had not wanted her around some of those practices before. Um, and she's just starting to learn about it. And you highlight this tension that's mm. even felt within this community, right? That like a lot of times when people are first coming into Ile Leroye, that they, they are also uncomfortable with the sacrifice um, and that it's something that through the process of uh, working in the kitchen and learning these kinds of um, like learning the, the stories about why the sacrifice takes place the way it does, why the food is prepared in particular ways that they eventually come to see this as a source of power. Yes. Um, and I found that very, very fascinating. Yes, absolutely. I mean, my mother, who's in her 70s now, she remembers being um, at her grandmother's home in Southeast Cuba. And when they were going to have chicken dinner, the, the chickens um, would be would be killed. And my mother actually really liked plucking the chickens. So she'd sort of fight to get to do it. Um, <laughs> you know, but um, I the, the, the tradition in, in some ways had begun to be documented at a time where um, there was such a premium on modernity and the idea of a religion um, leaving behind the quote unquote, you know, vestiges of atavism um, of Africa. And so a lot of, um, I would say is the major components of these rituals were left out selectively and, and in a well-intentioned way. Um, but they did give a bit of a misleading understanding, um, again, about what the average person experiences, and, as opposed to the theology of these traditions or um, people who were sort of virtuosos, what they might um, think about these rituals and how they would be interpreted. Um, and so 
I'm glad that that this um this anecdote about the way that younger people are habituated into this tradition um resonated with you because I really did want to show that um characters are molded that um it's not enough to um, read some books or, or go on some websites these days, um, listen to some YouTube videos about who <laughs> the Orishas are, you know, increasingly, you know, people who call themselves Orisha devotees, they are acquiring um, this knowledge online. And right. they, they are developing their sense of the Orishas by looking at images, you know, Google image search and etc. But when you walk into a Lukumi community, there is um, a whole um, a, a whole reshaping of the sensorium that is going to take place between, you know, that first step on the threshold, um, that first greeting of, of Alegba, who is is the guardian of the of the threshold. And, you know, then one's entry into uh, the room in which one will be uh, consecrated to the Orisha and become a priest. Um, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes for reasons of illness, um, or there's an emergency, people do wind up getting initiated before, uh, they have really, uh, I would say transformed then their sensoria. Um, but my argument also is in part that even as a priest, one is, is constantly, um, in this process of, um, becoming, uh, Lukumi, that it, it is not a process that ends or begins with any particular rite of passage. Yeah, and I think that really highlights to some of the perhaps problematic notions that we associate with uh, Western religious traditions that they do focus on, you know, just scripture or, you know, um, that they do need to, um, you know, focus on these, these larger uh, ritual practices. Um, and instead really focusing kind of on the, um, the, the way that, that we are shaped and prepared, uh, mm. to carry on a, a tradition that that's not something that just happens naturally. Um, and it's not something that's necessarily always pretty either, or, you know, respectable, as you said before. Right. There's a lot that's, um, not photogenic <laughs> and, <laughs> right. um, there's awkwardness, uh, hesitation. Um, and I, I also want to add that um, my graduate advisor at the University of Chicago is Bruce Lincoln. And um, one thing that I did take away from my um, mentorship by him um, is a hermeneutics of suspicion around what religions say that they're doing as opposed to right. what's actually taking place. And so um, even more so when I was writing up um, and, and trying to convert my dissertation into a book, I realized that um, world religions, but really many, if not most religions, um, they stake their transformative power on what rites of passage do or what certain privileged macro practices do. Um, you know, they say in baptism X happens or in confirmation, this, this, or that is what occurs. And for the most part, religious studies scholars very diligently say, okay, you know, and, and <laughs> right, they, right. they follow along and, and, and those are the rituals that, um, 
you know, are, are sort of um, served on a silver platter to be analyzed. Um, and I, I had to say, wait a minute, you know, even a tradition like Lukumi, which in so many ways is anti-colonial, decolonial, um, it, it is um, not in keeping with uh, even the gender norms of Western traditions or other world religions, even it um, performs this sort of uh, interesting maneuver where it, it does, you know, list, it, it does uh, promote certain rituals as being particularly transformative, um, but its leaders have not always, um, for various reasons that, that we addressed earlier, have not wanted to say uh, that the micro practices that I like to talk about um, are in any way part of uh, the tradition's power. And so um, I have to credit Bruce Lincoln for, um, I guess, attuning my antenna to these kinds of dynamics. Absolutely. And um, I see that we are very quickly running out of time. So I just want to um, shift gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about, because you have, um, you mentioned gender before. Yes. And you have two chapters of this book that are devoted to talking about how these micro practices um, construct gender, both in, uh, in typical, you know, Western context, but also very much outside of typical, the typical Western understanding of, of gender norms. And so um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences there and how that relates to some of your um, current interests as you move on to your future projects. So I think one way to um, begin to sort of, I, I guess, address this assemblage of um, different themes having to do with gender and sexuality is to say that um, not just Lukumi, but Black Atlantic traditions like Haitian Vodou, like Brazilian Candomblé, um, they do not follow the established norms um, uh, and gendered hierarchies that we see in other traditions. Um, very often, women have an immense amount of power as diviners, as dancers, um, as herbalists, as other kinds of ritual specialists, but also gay men. And also lesbians are um, seen as being important religious actors because the idea is that um, people's destinies are, um, they are formulated even before birth. And so to assume humanity is actually to accept and assume a destiny that one has been given, of course, it can be improved somewhat, but sexual orientation is just part of that destiny. It is not seen as a choice. Um, another feature of these traditions that's important to think about is that in possession, it, which is one of the most exalted forms of religious engagement, um, very often female spirits will possess men, uh, male coded spirits will possess women. And here I'm talking cisgender, um, individuals, and that's not seen to be strange at all. And so folks who we think of as, as, as cis men will, will be flirting and will be coquettish and will be, um, plying feminine, feminine wiles in a room full of people who will address that person as a woman, as a female spirit. Um, and so when I was 
watching what was going on in the kitchen, one of the things I had in mind was the fact that, wow, it's not just women who are running these kitchens. Uh, A lot of these kitchens are run by gay men and they have not really been given their due for that. Um, Even now, I mean, I'm trying to write a little bit more uh, about the, the way that that operates. But one of the things I was trying to do with my book is make that statement that Gay men have not just been important in thinking about the aesthetics of their tradition um, in terms of altar building um, or even as possession mounts. There has been a lot, a a big literature um, about the way that gay men function in these communities um, due to their perceived facility for possession, but that gay men are really powerfully influencing um, the way that tables are set, the menus <laughs> that are being um, are being conceived around rituals, you know, and, and that they are responsible in some ways for knowing what the tastes of the Orishas are, which is an incredibly important um, bit of knowledge that they have to communicate. Um, and and the way that they run their kitchens um, is seen to really redound uh, to their. Um, let's say to their reputation as being exacting, as being um, clean and being, um, you know, punctilious about what they're doing, being meticulous. And so um, obviously some of these ideas rely on essentialist, biologically essentialist ideas about gender and what, um, you know, gay men are like and what, you know, cisgender women are like, et cetera. Um, what I did find, though, um, in, in these uh, settings is that very few transgender people um, seem to be participating, um, as opposed to all of the LGB people who I was always seeing. And, and here I'm not just talking about Chicago, but Miami, um, New York, L.A., um, and so uh, the, the postdoc that I mentioned before in sociology at UC Berkeley had to do precisely with that, with um, why transgender religious practitioners are not as visible and as attracted to Black Atlantic religions as LGB people are. And it was in the course of doing that research um, in 2010 and 2011 um, that I met other transgender religious practitioners in a range of other uh, traditions. And so I went to um, the Bay Area to do field work and interviews with practitioners of Lukumi and other religions. But I sort of d- discovered that um, there were so many uh, Christians in other traditions, um, Jewish people, two spirit elders um, who were engaging in this really important work of converting their traditions into um, spaces that would be welcoming, that would be affirming of transgender people, um, that I decided that that should be my second book. That should be my second major project. And so um, what I'm engaged in now is turning this decade uh, of research, both ethnographic and archival, um, into a second book about Black and Latinx transgender religious practitioners. That sounds so wonderful. And I wish that we had more time to chat more about some of the things that you've seen and learned. Um, and I, I certainly cannot wait for um, your new projects uh, to come out as well. Um, but for now, unfortunately, we mm-hmm. are 
out of time. Um, so I just wanted to thank you again so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. Um, and again, call readers to your book. Again, the title of your book is Religion in the Kitchen, Cooking, Talking, and the Making of Black Atlantic Traditions. Again, that's Elizabeth Pettis and published by New York University Press. Elizabeth, thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Savannah. It was such a pleasure. I'm very thankful that we get to focus on uh, gender and the way in which food is so essential to some religious traditions. It's one of the things that when I teach class, I know that I really emphasize that we can take the opportunity at every moment in our lives to try to understand the role that religion is playing for us and to hear about the ways in which uh, family and ritual and and gender uh, intersect in these rituals, initiations that uh, Dr. Perez was speaking about is really useful for me. And so I'm very thankful for today's interview. It got us looking, and and Bree and I were were looking through the back catalog and and reminding ourselves just how often uh, the Religious Studies Project has had the opportunity to talk about gender. Um, In our earliest episodes, uh, all the way back in in 2012, uh, we were talking about uh, with Lizbeth Mickelson about religion and gender. We've done episodes on gender and corporeality, uh, gender and queer theory, uh, gender and uh, violence, and that was with you, uh, Brienne, with Caroline Blythe. You you have contributed as well to to the abundance of things that we have on on gender. Thank you for doing that. There is just so much. When you say the abundance that we have done on gender, we really have, looking back at that list, if we keep going through it, we have eco-spirituality, gender and nature with Susanna Crockford. And looking back at this list, we were thinking about all the other episodes that come into contact with this idea of gender, whether it's fashion or other kind of concepts. And so Dave and I thought that we might make a playlist of episodes that come into contact with this notion of gender and we'll hopefully have that up for you later this week. Absolutely we will. By by Friday certainly to share with everyone and and to really offer everyone an opportunity to see the variety of uh, contributions that we have. But next time we also have some really interesting stuff with a returning contributor. Uh, who do we have on the schedule, Brie? Well, we have Religious Studies co-founder David Robertson and he interviewed Paul Francois Tremlett on religion and social change. So that's coming up next week. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett.
Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>